The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome, my guest today. John Corr is joining me to review uh, Genesis chapter 6 in our continuing series. Uh, John, good day to you. Good day. Uh, We are going to have a brief uh, review of chapter 5, I believe, before we head on into chapter 6. Yeah, actually, uh, just real briefly, uh, chapter 5 uh, in one sense, is following the line of Seth, who is one of Adam's other sons. Uh, chapter 4, at the end, followed the line of Cain. Now we have chapter 5 with the line of, uh, of Seth. And in chapter 5, uh, really, a uh, few people are highlighted. Seth, who takes over for Abel. Enoch, who, uh, who walks with God, and then God takes him. Um, he's no more... And then we have uh, the transition to Noah. At the end of chapter 5, we see Noah, and his, actual, his father uh, is hoping that Noah will be the one that brings rest to the world. And then go into chapter 6 with the story of Noah and, and the story of the flood that goes until chapter 9. So that's kind of leading right into, the, right into chapter 6. Now, is there anywhere in the Bible where Noah's uh, siblings are, are mentioned, or, or do we just uh, uh, fly over those and concentrate on Noah? Yeah, I think we just do that because <laughs> as far as I know, there's no indication of other sons, but I imagine his parents had other children. The text is just focusing our attention on him. Okay. Yeah. So let's start uh, with Genesis chapter 6, the corruption of mankind, and, and so it continues. And I'll start with uh, verse 1, and perhaps you'll you'll just want to automatically uh, enter into the other verses as you feel uh, uh, good about that. Um, Verse 1 is, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Um, What are these two uh, verses telling us, uh, John, as preface for this chapter? Well, for one thing, you have uh, perhaps is a population explosion or something of showing how in Chapter 5 how uh, people began to multiply and fill the earth. Uh, So you have this increasing uh, population uh, at, and at the same time, we will see that one of the things that comes about this is the corruption of man that grows uh, increasingly um, uh, greater, but some sort of population explosion of all mankind uh, and uh, leading to the, the sin that will be described perhaps in, chapter, in the rest of the chapter here. When we talk about sons of God, can you define that for me? The, the, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. It seems to be a terribly profound uh, sentence here. Um, actually more striking to me than many of the other verses. Uh, the sons of God. <laughs> that is, <laughs> the sons of God is probably uh, 
who they are is probably the most difficult question to answer in in you got about 90, in all of, 90 seconds in all of genesis <laughs> um, actually the sons of god i could spend probably uh <laughs> hours on this because uh we don't know who they are there's there's four possibilities because um it's very uh, it's we're not clear and if you read different commentaries and different old testament scholars they will fall on all sides of this issue so it's not very clear uh, one explanation was that the sons of God were angels, fallen angels. And and what's being described here is that these fallen angels uh, went and married and had children with, with, with women here on this earth. So they took the form of human beings. Right. Now, <clears throat> in support of this is that this phrase in the Hebrew is Beni Elohim, which means sons of God is used elsewhere to describe angels, like in Job. You have Job chapter 1 and chapter 2 that describes the heavenly court with the angels presenting themselves to God. And, of course, Satan is one of them, though he's fallen. And, of course, you know the story of Job with um, arguing about Job, whether he's following God uh, for the right reasons or not. So this phrase is used uh, in in Job. And Job is also an ancient book. It's around perhaps an older book than Genesis. We don't know. Um, and some of the New Testament passages, like in Jude and in First and Second Peter, uh, quotes uh, from First Enoch, which was a uh, a Jewish writing that that hinted at this that perhaps this is what happened. And in fact, this view is actually the the oldest uh, the oldest view around. So that's just real quickly. I don't want to get. <laughs> can I can I just go back to that though? You you said that Job was possibly an older story than Genesis. Well, what do you mean by that? What I meant is it's an ancient book and perhaps it's as old as as Abraham or it's old as as earlier in, in Genesis. We're not really sure. Scholars, not, they just know that it's a very old book. So so you're, uh, you're what, suggesting that there's no not necessarily a chronolog- chronological order in which the Bible is written in certain certain areas. Right. No, the, the, the way the Bible is written, well, Job is considered part of the writings. So you have the Torah, which is what we're in now. Uh, so you have the law, you have the prophets, which... Uh, the Jewish idea of prophets included some of what we call historical books, and then you have the writings, which so Job's in a different genre of writing. Um, and the argument is that this idea of sons of God was ancient, uh, even to uh, to perhaps the time of Abraham, and so this phrase perhaps could have been used and to describe uh, these angels. What you also have also, as far as I understand, the Septuagint uh, describing, which is the Greek version of the Old of the Old Testament describing this as angels of God, um, but it's again it's not clear because there's a, there's a lot of problems with this view too. So it appears in verse one that that, uh, that almost it is in a reverse order. It says and daughters were born to them, and then it goes on to say that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever who, whomever they chose. Why is that sentence and, and daughters were born to them prior to uh, examining that uh, and expanding that further in verse 2? I don't know. <laughs> Thank a, you so much. That's a good, you have to show yeah. <laughs> What verse it's, 1 is describe verse 1 is describing the increase in population. And perhaps what verse 2 is describing is that this increase of population wasn't without um, problems. 
perhaps there's some lines or boundaries that are being crossed uh, that uh, that God had established as far as as far as as far as marriage. Something is going on here with regard to marriage, whether it's between man and a fallen angel, or whether it's between regular people that are not keeping limits. Uh, and that's where some of these other views get into. Um, so, but I, as far as you answer your question, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. <laughs> that one goes down to the black book. <laughs> so, uh, moving on to verse 3, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. So, clearly now God is saying, Okay, well, we, we've all been living far too long, making far too many mistakes um, over and over again. So, I'm going to reduce our lifespan. Yeah, and I, I, I didn't want to go too quickly at verse 3. I just want to give you a few other views because they're important for this chapter. So one of the other views, one of the other main views is one that these are actual people as far as the sons of God, that perhaps these are uh, a mixing of lines. And what that means is the godly, what they call the godly line of Seth. You saw in chapter 5, Seth's line, who is clearly more godly than the Canaanite line of chapter 4. And perhaps the sin that is being described is now the, un- the godly is now mixing with the ungodly and no longer is there a distinction. Um, and so perhaps this is part of what's going on. It could be that this, this chapter is describing um, w- um, the mixing of the pure of the impure. And so this is purely metaphorical it's met- in, could, in, in a way. Or, right, or it could be just that <laughs> Uh, another possibility is that these um, sons of God were actual people, but they, they were demonized, perhaps, and they began. The idea here is that is that there were boundaries of marriage, whether it was polygamy, whether it was with, whether it was uh, forcefully taking wives against their will, or whatever. Something is going on that was not in God's plan, and perhaps what the writer Moses is doing is painting a picture of the times. You had un. Unhibited marriage, where people uh, were these uh, people were taking wives, whoever they chose, and, that, and, the, and perhaps that means polygamy. Another th- possibility is that the sons of God is also used elsewhere in Scripture to describe kings, and perhaps these were kingly, noble people who were abusing their power and taking uh, taking you know uh, common women, you could say, uh, and and uh, misusing their power, and so now what they should have been protected by the king. Now they're being abused by the king and, and by these noblemen. So there's these evidence. But what's going on here is obviously there's something that's, uh, that's so bad that verse 3 comes in, and now God sends then as a, re- as a response to verse 1 and 2. Then he says, my spirit will not strive with me. In other words, there's a judgment here. Okay? What, why isn't he not just saying my patience won't last out anymore? You've had it. <clears throat> well, well, why, why are we using that word spirit in this context? My spirit will not strive. That's... <laughs> Another <laughs> difficult. You see, I ask all the right questions, don't I? <laughs> because we're not sure. We're not. This verse is also unclear. <laughs> because there's a possibility. It's one, it could be that that um, that he's describing his spirit over the world as preserving the world. That he's only giving mankind 120 years left until the flood. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that his own spirit, that, that when he breathes into mankind, the, the life-giving, you know, the, life, the soul of the person, that he is, he is going to not allow them to live forever. In other words, up until this time, they've been living for a very long time, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. Perhaps he's limiting their lifespan uh, and shortening it. I think the, I, 
agree with the former that perhaps he's selling uh, up until the time of flood, it'll be 120 or so years left. So up to not so much Chapter 5, because that's more of a, a declaration uh, or, or a, a timeline, I suppose. Right. Um, is Genesis 6 now the apex of absolute chaos? Yes. Yes, chap- uh, Chapter 6 is... You say the the apex of it's, it's it's almost like the 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 final days of the Roman Empire. It's when everything it just is got, is imploding, right? And I think and I think what you have here is this is perhaps taking place during the time. Perhaps this is taking place during the time of chapters four and five, as far as their genealogies. But it's building up to the time of Noah. So even before Noah was born, things were getting bad. I mean, you get the indication from chapter four with Cain's descendants who got really, really bad, right? Um, increasingly worse. Well, this is all going at the same time, and it brings to the apex of the time of Noah where uh, it's set, where later on everything they, that they're doing and thinking about is on evil. And so, yes, this, the corruption of sin, has, which began with Adam and Eve, is now pervasive to the whole human race. It's a dreadful... dreadful uh dreadful day isn't it's it? you know it's a picture of cancer it's really a picture of something that's spread so so much that that drastic messages have to be taken otherwise this 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 talks about a, a population explosion in the in this period yeah you have the right so i mean in many ways it's it's almost uh, reflective of where the world is now isn't it in, in a way <laughs> you're exactly right because I mean, Jesus is asked two days before his crucifixion. He's asked in 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 Matthew and in, in uh, Gospel of Luke, like Luke seventeen and Matthew, I think twenty two or twenty four. Uh, what's the sign of your coming? What's going to be a sign when you come back? And one of the things that Jesus says is that just was just just as it was in the days of Noah, it will be the same way as as it, as when I come back. This this the days will be similar. And one of the characteristics of this. Noetic day was huge population explosion and also corruption and other things as well. What's the specific d- d- definition of that? Is it suggesting that uh, uh, um, expanded population and explosion <laughs> brings with it uh, mass corruption, mass uh, unethical, I- immoral problems because of the quantity or 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 other? What What is that saying? I think what it's saying is if you have a mass explosion of corrupt people, you're going to have a mass explosion of corruption all over the world. So, because it becomes the norm. Right. And so, yeah, you have, and so, you know, my question is, as, I, as I'm, you know, reading, you know, um, you know, reading the Gospels and, and looking at what Jesus says about those days when he comes back is, what were the days of Noah's like, the days of Noah like? You know, what was, and I think this is what chapter 6 is painting a picture of, of just how corrupt it is. And the fact that um, um, that we're that we haven't changed over the you know that mankind hasn't changed since the time of Noah. I was going to ask you, how old? Just for our listeners, how old was Noah by the time he reached this point? <sighs> how old was Noah? I have to look that up. <laughs> uh, by the time he reaches the point, he is about. 
Let's see when. Five hundred and ninety-five years. He's around six hundred. Yeah. Okay, so so when it talks about uh, nevertheless his days shall be one hundred and twenty years, that's not a reference to the lifespan of people. That's a reference to the period left until the flood. Well, that's how it, it, uh, some argue that, and some argue the uh, the opposite. Because we have after after Noah and after the flood, you have people's lifespans being reduced. And I think Moses lived around 120 years, so perhaps he's the benchmark. Um, I'm not. It's it's again a speculation. I I hold to more of this is the time until the the flood, but we do see also in scripture that in the Psalms that people's lifespans are more of 80 years. You know. Now what what about the uh, the, the the Darwin crowd who could possibly argue that after the flood, the environmental conditions change. Oxidization levels I, change. Before the flood, uh, it, it was conducive to very long lifespans, and after the flood, yeah. uh, then naturally people's lifespans were were reduced significantly because it did not have the same conditions. Right. Well, I mean, I don't know if that's the Darwin crowd that holds. The, I mean, I hold. To, I, I believe that something was radically different about the Earth beforehand because what you have is. In, chap- in, in through the flood, you actually have God returning the earth back to its chaotic stage from chapter 1. If you remember verse, uh, in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where this, uh, the, the earth was, it was uh, formless and void, you know, and the waters you know, were covering the earth. The, chapter, the, the flood describes that, and then after the flood occurs, the same progression in chapters 1 where the, the creation of the earth and the, and the plants and the animals, it follows the same progression as if God is recreating things. And so I think after the flood, things are radically different. You don't have the same structure of a, of a canopy uh, protecting people from the harmful rays uh, of the sun, or you don't have the same type of atmosphere conditions. You know, we, And this is, of course, all speculation, but perhaps this is part of what leads to shorter lifespans. You but, know? but at the end of the day, it, it's God's divine decision to, to do all that, right. to, to, to change that, that formulation of how the world is now right. uh, post-flood. Right. Um, you, you had uh, sort of uh, told me off back there because I had gone too quickly. Are, are we in verse three now, or are we still? Whereabouts are we? Because uh, I, are we in Genesis? <laughs> I, I, I wanted to ask. Uh, oh yeah, was, yeah. Verse three we talked about. So okay, just one thing there though. He he says, "My spirit shall not strive with man forever." Because he also is flesh. What what is the reference there? Is that referring fr- referring to something something or somebody else? No, it's it's <clears throat> perhaps if if he's referring to a shorter period of life, that it's a reminder that he is that that mankind is not eternally that because of sin, uh, he is he's going to have an end. You know, uh, again, this verse is very <laughs> so. It's, very al- tricky. it's it's almost. Um, a declaration, really? Uh, yes, and and again, there's there's uh, there's some difficulties with 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 some of the translation of about you know about how long and, and the spirit and all that. But what he's indicating here is is that is that either life will the life will be shortened, and whether that's a life of an individual or whether the life of all people except for Noah and his family, that there's gonna there's gonna come and you know an end to that, and that's not going to go on forever. It's not gonna go on forever where people are gonna live. Uh, in this corrupt state, you know, it will it'll come to an end. Now, would you like to take up the challenge of verse 4, John? 
Sure. Uh, the, the Nephilim, uh, it says, were on the earth in those days and afterwards when the sons of God when uh, came to the daughters of men and they bore children to them, and those were the mighty men of who were of old, men of renown. Now, <clears throat> two things. One, either these Nephilim, which were which they describe as giants, they're actually, it's, it's, the word is, uh, means uh, fallen ones. Um, either ones that were fallen, i.e. fallen angels, or the ones who fall on others, i.e., you know, tyrants that, that, uh, that attack people and, you know, take advantage of them. Is that a translation from Hebrew or? Actually, the, the, my understanding is the Nephilim, uh, the, the Hebrew, uh, Nephal means to fall, yeah. And so you can take it as those uh, who were um, falling upon or the ones who are falling. And so if you hold to the theory of these being fallen angels, then the product of these fallen angels and the women are these giants, you know, the, these men of renown. The other, uh, the other side is that these Nephilim were contemporaries of the sons of when the sons of God came in. In other words, you had these sons of God, who, whoever they were, uh, abusing uh, marriage. At the same time, you had these uh, these tyrants who would fall on people and just attack them and, and kind of uh, run chaotic. Uh, and it says that they were in those days and also afterwards uh, when during this time. So perhaps these are contemporaries. So it's another picture of what was going on. You have... Um, you had uh, people uh, running wild and, and perhaps uh, evil men running wild and, t- and hurting people and attacking them. Um, so anarchy, you could say, or, or um, chaos, you could say, uh, is what's going on. And so um, – and, and, and these, uh, these were mighty men of old and, and men of renown. They were famous and they were also strong and, and took advantage of the weak. The verse 5, um, do we move on into that, glide into that? Yeah, and I just want to say one thing is, is that uh, you'll see this term Nephilim, just, just to say, you'll see this term Nephilim when, um, uh, in the book of Numbers. And obviously Numbers is after the flood, and it's during the time when the, the spies are sent out to, to check out the land. And the ten of the spies come back and said that that we saw the, the Nephilim in there. They're the sons of Anak. Uh, and so what was going on is when they came into the land, they saw the people that were stronger than they. They became very afraid, and they said we were they were like giants, and we were like grasshoppers. So I think uh, just to clarify for somebody just listening is that the Nephilim did not survive the flood. The Nephilim in Numbers is are just used as a figurative sense. You know, uh, in the eyes of the uh, the spies of Israel, who were looking at the four to five cities of Canaan and the strong, mighty men of Canaan, and saying we were, it was like as if these were Nephilim. So, just to clarify, because some people might say, well, how did Nephilim go from chapter six to chapter thirteen of Numbers? They died in the flood, but they're using it descriptively here. When they, when they say those were the mighty men who were of old men or renown, is there some sort of connotation of them having some sort of wisdom or or courage? Um, more of uh, I don't know if uh, more of um, heroes of mythology, perhaps, or more of their strength rather than their wisdom. It's it's unclear. Again, it's been. <laughs> If you want the short answer or the long answer, <laughs> that would do just fine. Thank you very much. Um, verse five. Uh, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
Um, now, should I continue into verse six? But does that run into that? Well, let's let's just start with verse five real quick. Is is here? God is is in one sense paralleling the the verse two, where the, the sons of God saw and then they took. You know, uh, here God sees that every intent of their heart is uh, the corruption is widespread. The universality of their of their corruption, uh, and of course, the thoughts of their hearts, not just their actions, but their thoughts. Uh, is widespread. Um, I think what he's doing here is based on the first four verses, you have evidence of this going on, and you have uh, the writer, obviously, with God agreeing uh, with the wickedness of man, so that when he comes in and when he does uh, decide to judge, it's not without warrant. It's not like God just comes in with, without a reason. There's good reason for, for him to do what he has to do, and it's because of the corruption of, of mankind. Then you can go to verse 6. Yeah, and I was going to say, this is one of the uh, most amazing sentences. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Uh, Can you tell me, what is that indicative of in the nature of God? Uh, And we talked about this earlier in the car on the way down, I know, but um, the the Lord was sorry. uh, How does that describe God? You know, one... It, I think it clarifies that God is not an emotionless person. The idea that God doesn't change doesn't refer to that he is stoic and that nothing affects him. I think what happens here is is that God, in a proper time, in response to how man is going, shows the proper remorse of their actions. Yes, God knew what was going to happen, but he doesn't. You know, give the remorse beforehand. He gives the remorse in response to their actions, um, and I think part of what 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 grieves God or grieved God, what pained God was the sin. Sin pained and hurt Adam and Eve, and he also pained God because man was not what he had designed it to be. Because of sin, uh, sin had corrupted man, and um, it grieved him. It it upset. You know, you could say it. it you know, it was painful to God. Um, but I, I don't think uh, the idea of God not changing um, doesn't mean that uh, – what it means is that his his emotions don't get the best of him, but he still shows a f- proper emotions, you know, to what's going on in somebody's life. Um, and it's part of his nature. I think it's part of his nature to, to uh, you know, to, to see something that – and the potential that mankind had – and to see it not reach its potential grieves him. Um, it's because it, he cares, you know. Um, if it didn't, if he didn't care, he wouldn't show any kind of grief over it. And what kind of God would that be? Seven is saying the Lord said, "I will blot out man." I'm ever so interested in the grammatical use here and the words used. I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. For I am sorry that I have made them. Why is it, John, in that sentence, in that verse, that he's not just limiting the grief and the implications to humans, and yet he's actually he's laying on this? On everybody, on on anything and everything that he's created. Yeah, why why are the animals suffering because of man's sin? Um, that's a good question. One possibility is that perhaps the animals got worse, but I don't know if I buy that. I think what it is is that man's actions do have effect, profound effect on the, the surroundings and the people and the, uh, 
animals around. You, you get back to Genesis 3, the first sin, you had the, the ground being cursed. You know, now the, the plants aren't able to grow the same way. Well, the plants didn't do anything wrong. Man did. I, the animals, there was a sacrifice when God decided to cover Adam and Eve. Some animal had to die and offer its skin. I think perhaps this is teaching that, that sin does have consequences for even those who are innocent. You know, even those who uh, don't uh, participate in a particular sin may face consequences. Here, our sin affects, affects the world even to those plants and animals that are innocent. And I think that's part of, um, of what's being described here. And I think part of what God has to do in, in wiping out man is, is, he ha- is that the animals are, 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 are affected by it as well. Man is also is, is as his position as being the representative and the, 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 the sort of the lord of the world, you could say, as being the one who is in charge of all things. Uh, they face the consequences, unfortunately. But the good thing about it is, of course, he you know preserved animals and plants that uh, in the ark, of course. But uh, um, he decides to blot them out and, and, and just wash it all clean. Do you know why he uses that word "blot"? The the, the author Moses here. It seems an amazing if, word if, to me. If I if I remember correctly, and I don't have uh, my um, my uh, Hebrew in front of me, I think it's the word for wash. Um, so 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 it is uh, the first description. Or, or definition of what's going to occur here. Yeah, you have when you, the two, it, uh, if, and I'm just going by memory right now because I, I don't have it in front of me. But to 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 wash clean uh, is perhaps is what is being described here. So uh, moving on to Noah, and obviously uh, the Lord found favor in Noah. Hmm. That's a great verse <laughs> because you know here you have um, you have the first evidence of God's grace. Found favor is the word is what we call grace. In, in the midst of all this corruption, in the midst of just a real chaotic world, um, God has grace towards towards Noah, and He's going to use Noah to um, secure salvation for his family and, by implication, for the rest of humanity after him. Noah, in one sense, is a type of Christ because uh, uh, he is he is. Um, he secures salvation for for people. Uh, he um, that was a, that was a big statement. That yeah. was. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of parallels with Noah and the ark and and, and with Christ as far as um, as far as the salvation part. You know, Noah is and the ark representing uh, in one sense uh, salvation uh, um, that you you have in Christ. That the people who are in the ark are secure and they're and they're shut in and they're being. They're in one sense being taken through the flood, but without being harmed, and and uh, and, and where there's corruption or death and judgment of the world, those who are in the ark are safe from that. So now, what's interesting here is that it is not defining why Noah has been given this glory, as it were. We're not seeing here what he's achieved in his life to to, to deserve this honor. That's, given, and I'm that's and, an excellent question. And I'm understanding here that we're now at a position where the population is millions of people. I'm assuming, and yeah. here's Noah chosen out of this massive population. Um, any reasons there? 
That's a very good question or a good, good insight. Was it because Noah was righteous and holy and all this that he, des- that he earned God's favor? Or was it just that God decided to show favor to him and Noah happened to be <laughs> righteous? Or maybe he knew Noah was a good boat builder or something. Uh, <laughs> I don't think <laughs> Noah was a good <laughs> They didn't really have boats back then. <laughs> um, if, it's, if, if, God, if, if Noah finds favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord because of his own righteous deeds, then grace is based on merit. In other words, that it's all works-based. If that were the indication, then what you would have had, you would have had verses, uh, you would have had verse nine come before verse eight. You would have had the evidence of of Noah's life of being a righteous man, blameless, walking with God, and as a result of that, he finds grace. But you don't have that. So God's grace is not based on on how good Noah is. God's grace is is based on his own very choice when he chooses Ab- uh, Abraham or Abram. He doesn't choose Abram because Abram is a, is, a, is a holy man at that time. He just chooses him. And, and, and I, I think that's why I'm asking the question is because when you look at later chapters and you look at Abraham uh, and other uh, notice, notable characters who are taken down to the absolute pits uh, because, because of who they are in, in terms of Abraham, he was a pagan. And... and we see that occurring over and over again in the Old Testament. So we, 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 we get a picture of who they were, where they were going, and what God was doing with them. And I guess I'm asking that question because here with Noah, we don't have that. We, just, we, we do just have, as you say, the, the statement that he was offered grace and right. that he deserved it for a reason that, Possibly will never know. Yeah, I, I, my understanding is that did he find grace or did he earn the grace? And that's, I think, depending on how, they, how you translate that, that word found in Hebrew, I believe it's found in the sense that God, God offered his grace. Yes, he was a righteous man and, and a blameless man, but the basis for God's grace isn't necessarily that, that Noah earned it. Um, the same way when God decides to uh, God decided to call Moses, um, you know, and and Moses was a murderer, you know, um, God's grace is is undeserved, and I think I think as you indicated before, this theme is reoccurring uh, in the Old Testament and of course in the New Testament of God's grace. Um, no, I happen to be righteous and blameless and walk with God. So perhaps there's a tie there. But I think it's interesting that this verse comes before the next verse that describes Noah. And we don't know it. We don't have a whole lot about, you know, his daily life. We just have very clear and short, precise description of, of who he is, what he's like. We don't even hear him talk until until after the flood where he curses Cain or, you know, Cain. Um, is there is there any suggestion in theological circles that actually this appointment to Noah um, as a righteous man by God was over his brothers and sisters? Um, that I know of, no. And as far as oh, there were Noah's, there's no mention of Noah's brothers and sisters. Okay, we don't know. 
See, I'm trying to. We don't know if he's the only child. (laughs) We know. know. We'll we'll have to go and find out what the where the birth the uh, all the records. But we do see is that Noah is he's uh, as verse nine describes that he is a righteous man, and we'll talk about that in a sec. What that means? He's blameless, and he walks with God. And then later on, we see that he obeys God. He does what God tells him to do. So. Um, now, is that a uh, uh, that's very much a generic statement, there, isn't it? Which, that, uh, that he, he walked with God, because that that's actually a statement that that is applied to other individuals in the Old Testament. It's, it's a statement of intimacy. It described Enoch. Enoch walked with God. It's it's it describes a uh, uh, a a close, uh, repetitive type of of walk in fellowship with God. Enoch had it. The same phrase is used of him as is Noah. So you have Noah who had this intimate walk with God. He, 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 was, he was a friend of God, you could say. Um, he is he's a righteous man. And in my understanding of righteousness in that day and the Old Testament, righteous refer to those who were selfless, to those whose actions were for others and, and for God as well. The wicked are the ones who are selfish. Um, and then you have um, this blameless. Blameless is a word that does not mean absent from sin. It means that he abstained from sin in the sense that he his his uh, life was 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 uh, the habit of his life was to walk with God. Yeah, this probably did he sinned here, sinned there, whatever. But that wasn't the general tone. The general tone of his life was. That he was blameless. That he was. Uh, that he abstained from sin. So, well, moving on to ten, Noah became the father of three sons: Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Um, and then it goes on to eleven, where now it says, "Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence." And as you're beginning to realize, I I, I like to know why certain verses are put into certain orders. So it's it's mentioning now that he becomes a father, but then it almost goes on to a more global view in the in the verse immediately afterwards, where it's now talking about the earth rather than individuals. Um, yeah, the earth was filled with fire. Yeah, in fact, what's interesting is this uh, this idea of the earth being repeated, and that and of course the idea is is that not necessarily the. The physical earth, as, as far as you know, the, the dirt, but people on the earth uh, became so filled with violence. Uh, the word violence here is the word Hamas or Hamas, and uh, and you have this corruption that's growing and growing. And what you have in verses uh, eleven and twelve and thirteen is the rep- repetition of this word corrupt. It becomes corrupt in the sight of God. It's filled with violence, and behold, it was corrupt, and they corrupted their way. And then finally in verse 13 where he says he's going to destroy them, he uses the same word for corruption but uses it sort of against them, sort of say they have corrupted themselves to the point of being corrupted to the point of me destroying them because they're corrupt. And so that's the idea. And yes, and it's all over the earth, all over the place. It's worldwide. It's not local. It's, just, it's worldwide. <laughs> what what, what, uh, what sub-definitions would come underneath corrupt, just for our listeners? Um, you're, you're obviously talking about immorality, um, uh, uh, skewed ethics, dreadful sexual behavior. Um, you're talking about just about 
anything that could de- come under the category of sin. Yeah, and I don't have uh, all of the uh, the uh, different definitions of, of of that word, but you, what you describe is is the picture that is uh, being described here in this context. That uh, it's it's um, you know, the, the 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 thoughts, the actions. It was all infected by uh, by sin and selfishness. Now, when he, when God says in verse thirteen, at the end, and he and he's talking to Noah, and he says, "And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth." Is there any suggestion of hesitation there, awaiting for Noah's reaction? Before he makes the final decision, are you asking? Is he is he seeking Noah's permission? Or I is he think just, is he seeking whether Noah is up to the task? Um, as far as I see, I don't see indication of Noah giving any kind of um, hesitation. He talks to Noah, and the verse says later on at the end of the chapter, it says Noah did all that God told him to do. Perhaps Noah realizes and sees what God sees and realizes that something must give, something must happen. Yes, what he's going to have take Noah through is very drastic, but perhaps Noah, realizing he is living in the midst of the world that's highly corrupt, is seeking for some resolve or some sort of rescue from this, and perhaps this is the answer. For, this is speculation, but there's no, no indication that Noah gives any kind of of objection. You can only begin to imagine the desperation challenge uh, for Noah now in building this ark. Oh, yeah. uh, not only does he have to build an ark in this supposed 120 years, if we're looking at this text correctly, but I'm sure he also has to oppose the people around him. Uh, we can only uh, speculate as to how difficult it was for him to be able to complete it in time. You're, you're exactly right. Because I mean, think about it, uh, we don't have any indication that that there was ever any rain, for one thing, or any kind of flooding. And now here he is going to build this massive structure based upon faith, based alone. upon what God said, and. No, how do you know? Who's this God you're talking about? How do you know that that's going to flood? Oh, and then ridicule, and the and the and the, you know, the, the, maybe maybe his kids were teased at school or something. You know, a crazy old man is building this ark. Now, uh, uh, yeah, it is. It's a great testing of faith. And and is that similar to the way, given that Moses was the author of this, is that similar to the way that Moses was tested as well? By all of those people that he left down at the bottom of the mountain when he when he climbed the mountain, because they're saying to Moses, um, "Well, uh, what is it that you you think that you're going to find up there? Why don't you just stay with us and 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 celebrate complete mayhem?" Well, well, um, so so Moses is actually interpreting in many ways his own experiences. You know, in a sense, he can relate to to Noah because. And even before even before Moses goes to the mountain, when he's sent by God originally with you know at the burning bush, and God says, "Go, you know, tell him, Pharaoh, let my people go." Noah in, or Moses rather says, first of all, what's your name? <laughs> Who am I going to say sent me? And can you help me out with proving that you exist, so to speak?" In other words, and God says, "Here's my staff, and you know, here's some evidences." You know, 
Noah didn't have that. Noah just had God's word. And as far as we understand, I don't. He doesn't have a you know a burning bush or a staff that turns you know to show hey God is proved. But no, I think Moses would definitely you know. Uh, I mean that's the nature of faith. You know is is believing in something that you can't see, or something that hasn't been done yet. You know, and so can you imagine Noah building this ark for for a hundred years? You know what's an ark? You know what's <laughs> what's a boat? What's a flood? And knowing that God told him to do it, and he did it. Despite perhaps the ridicule, perhaps the the notoriety of you know of, of him be, being the only ark builder in the whole world, yet he still, despite what the world said, he went against what the world said and followed what God said. And that's a I mean that's you know the book of Hebrews says that by faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. Uh, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to by faith. So even though the whole world was against him and the whole world mocked and perhaps ridiculed or didn't believe, his faith is not tied to what the world says. His faith was the fact that God had warned him, and in response to what God said, he you know does you know, and that's that's a challenge for believers today. Um, the believers today, um, we oftentimes we look at the world and wonder why the world doesn't like us. The world's not supposed to like us, you know. The world's not going to love our ways because we're our, because believers in Christ are very different than than the, the ways of Christ are very different than the ways of the world. And um, yeah, it was a tremendous test of faith for a hundred years, over a hundred years building this ark. That's that's a lifelong project, and and at the same time, I can imagine Noah wondering. And we're just, you know, when is the flood? And are you sure, God? You know, and there's no indication he doubted, but I just wonder um, what kept him going. And he still believed God. And he did what God said. Um, in the last 10 minutes of the program here, John, uh, we're, I'm not sure that we're going to make it or that we should attempt this because it's an important uh, conclusion to the chapter. Uh, but it does talk about this word cubits, and I know that this is important. Uh, in many ways. Uh, in 15, this is how you shall make it, the length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Uh, you shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower second and third decks. Okay, so the, he's giving dimensions for the ark, obviously. A cubit ranged anywhere from around 18 inches to two feet or so. So if we do, uh, it, the ark is probably roughly 400, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and about 40 feet high. Uh, it's a very large structure. And up until, oh, good night. Uh, well, up until even uh, up until the, the building of some of the modern ships, it was, it was larger. It was probably the largest boat built up until probably the 1800s, I think it is, um, bigger than, than the ships that Columbus came, you know. Um, or the pilgrims came on, but it's designed. It's designed to hold a lot. It has perhaps anywhere from, uh, uh, I don't know, ninety or two or uh, ninety thousand to hundred thousand cubic feet or so. I I don't remember the exact dimensions. I don't have it in front of me, but it's it's large enough to hold the animals and the food and the people that are going to be there. What's interesting about this ark? Is that the dimensions are the are 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 the way the ships are built today? So the, you know the ratios of the length, width, and height, and everything. The other uh, some of the other um, 
ancient Near Eastern stories that had flood stories have their arcs differently. You have perhaps I think it's Gilgamesh has the the uh, the boat as being a cube. Well, this thing will spin around and probably and it will sink. This ship, this arc, which is is more like a battleship, it will serve. It will. It's designed to flow. It's designed to survive this this flood. Um, and so you have you know how did how did Noah know to build the the right dimensions? And God had to give him the dimensions of this ark. And you had three levels. You had enough. You had enough room for. I think they say that the um, the ark can hold something like five hundred twenty or so railroad you know, railroad uh, compartment. You know, cars that hold them. So that's plenty of room to hold animals. And you don't have to have full grown animals. You can have younger animals and and whatnot. So um, here he's making this. He's covering with what is called uh, pitch uh, at the end of verse fourteen. Uh, and actually, what's interesting, uh, this is perhaps some sort of resin that, that makes it more seaworthy. But this word actually is also used later on in Scripture to describe atonement. So it's interesting about that. And the ark itself, the word for the ark itself, is actually the same word that's used to describe the basket that, that Moses was placed in when he was a baby in the midst of the reeds, you know, in, uh, in Egypt. But you have this very large vessel very uh, that... Uh, is designed to flow. It is designed to carry a, a lot uh, of people and animals, and uh, you know would have been able to do the job. Um, in in verse eighteen, it, we we hear uh, we see here. But I will establish my covenant with you. Hmm. Now, he has not really talked about that covenant, but that ne- nevertheless, the writer is is establishing that. In our minds, yes, and and this is going to be something that he picks up on after the flood as well. So we could wait until uh, the next week or so to discuss. Because, but, uh, but essentially, but, it's, but it's, what it's going to be is a covenant where he is going to promise not to destroy the world the same way uh, as he, uh, because he understands that Noah is going to be the one that's going to carry on the human race after the flood, and so he's going to promise. That never again will he do a universal flood to destroy pe- uh, mankind. Uh, that he also will, because of Noah's sacrifice in, I think it's in chapter uh, chapter eight, uh, to God, that he will, uh, that that will preserve mankind up until the time of the cross. So we could probably discuss that later on because it gets into more detail. But um, yeah. But as far as the chapter is concerned, we we see that that God. Um, uh, says to Noah, you shall bring two of every kind uh, to keep them alive with you. And he also points out that they, they have to be male and female. Right. Um, uh, the birds after their kind and the animals after their kind. Um, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. Now, <laughs> clearly we need to talk about that statement there, after its kind. Just basically, you know, uh, animals that are compatible with one another. I mean, uh, it's not like, uh, I mean, you have Two dogs. You have two elephants. Two giraffes. Yeah, it, it doesn't. I don't know. If think the the phrase after his kind goes into the exact same specificity uh, specificity of, of of scientists today, but the idea as repeating from chapter one of Genesis as things that reproduce after a kind is that God is going to preserve the animal kingdom the same way He started it with with uh, creatures of like kind reproducing. He's going to restart it after the flood. The same, the same way. So the the whole intention here is is, is preservation. Uh, God bringing uh, these these animals and and also plants too uh, through this flood, so that they can restart 
uh, afterwards. And uh, now, is there any expectation at this stage of how long or what the duration of the flood is going to be? At this stage, you know, as far as I mean, we know after the fact, it's going to last a year or so. Of from the time the flood starts until the time they get off the ship, it's going to be a little over a year, which tells me that there's massive amount of water, massive amount of covering the earth. And um, but right now, we don't have an indication as far as the only hints we have is the fact that he has that God wants to just to to destroy um, all of mankind. On the face of the earth, we you know we have that indication beforehand. But as far as how long it will last, now we don't know yet. So, uh, in in counting down here, uh, twenty one is as for you take for yourself some of, of all food which is edible, gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him. So he did, and possibly uh, in the in the last three or four minutes, John, maybe you just want to to talk to that and then uh, maybe just review this chapter. Yeah, I mean, the, the, Noah is as as we saw before is is being this this man, this righteous man, this man who who is blameless, the man who walks with God. But he also is a man who does what God says to do. Uh, he is he is a picture of uh, exemplary um, um, righteousness and and uh, he does he follows God he does what God tells him to do out of pure faith, not knowing what the flood's going to look like when it's going to come, just knowing that God said that He will do it, and even though there's a long period of time, uh, he still does what God tells him to do without. Ev- ev- any sort of uh, evidence of uh, of rain or or whatever. And the funny thing about that, again, looking at Moses' life, is that we see at that stage that the Bible also or, 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 it, it actually defines those people who oppose him at right. the bottom of that mountain. Right. Um, there's there's more evidence to show the clarity or the visibility of how Moses really was so challenged by those by the pagans by the the the, the sin uh, everything else that was that was encompassing life right. even though he had brought these people to that point and yet really as you say with noah what we essentially are saying is that he was righteous and he had supreme faith right and 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 though what we have a description of noah is it's clear it's concise it's to the point you picture this man being humble, being faithful, and just just doing what God wants him to do, knowing that God will bring it to, to pass what He said He would. I think that's the difference between living by faith and living by sight. You know, when you live by sight, you you want to see things beforehand. You know, you you want to be like like Thomas, who says, "Unless I see, I won't believe." Mm. And Jesus says, "You know," and He He accommodates Thomas. And says, you know, come here, take your hands and place them on, you know, my side, my my hands, you know, be not unbelieving, but believing. But then he says, you know, blessed are those who believe and have not seen. So, so really, you're saying with faith that if we are faithful, we are truly not scared about the outcome. It can be negative, it can be positive, and in in Noah's terms, what could he expect? He did not know. Yeah, and that's the th- you know what's interesting is. Is being faithful to God does not necessarily mean that you are kept from danger or things happen in your life. If you look at the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, you have, the, I think it's the first three, Abel, who had faith in God, Enoch, and Noah, 
Okay, Abel believed in God, it cost him his life. Enoch believed in God, and he never died. Noah believed in God, and everybody else died. You know, all this, you know, there was still you know, things going on, his, uh, going on on the world at this time. Faith in God doesn't necessarily mean that God keeps you, um, you know, that bad things will happen to you. But it means he preserves you in one way or the other. Abel obviously is with God in heaven, as is Enoch and Noah as well. Uh, faith is speaks more of, of, of your knowledge or your trust in, in God and his person and his ability to do what he says, despite delays, despite uh, obstacles that come in the way. Um, if God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. And early on, we see this in, 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 the, in, the, in the Bible, that if God can't keep his word, he can't be trusted. And so, God, and so Noah takes that in one sense and says, well, God said this, I'm going to bank on that. And, of course, he does come through, even though it's on, it's on God's timing. You know, I don't know if Noah's expecting the flood to come next year, but, um, but it's all on when God decides to do things, you know, he, uh, he kept his trust in him. And that's the nature of faith is believing without seeing, knowing that God is faithful to do what he said he would do. John Cole, thank you for that. Uh, in re- reviewing uh, Genesis chapter 6 today, I'm sure that we will want to uh, review that before we enter into chapter 7 uh, next week. Thank, thank you. Thank you again. Thank you. And to our listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as we have. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series. Just visit davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, that's it for today. We'll say God bless to you, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors.